0: Late science fiction writer Isaac Asimov wrote near the end of his life, Although the time of death is approaching me, I am not afraid of dying and going to hell, or what would be considerably worse, going to the popularized version of heaven. I expect death to be nothingness, and for removing me from all possible fears of death, I am thankful to atheism, he says. The passage that we're going to look at today deals with a topic of great interest to many people today, and that is the afterlife. What, if anything, lies beyond the grave? In a recent Pew Research survey, nearly 20% of adults in America say that they have seen or been in the presence of ghosts, disembodied spirits, a figure that has doubled in just the last 20 years. Even more people say that they have felt in touch with Someone who has already died. What does lie beyond the grave? Nothing, like Isaac Asimov says, or ghosts, like many Americans believe, or something else. And what do you believe lies beyond the grave? Well, if you have a Bible uh, with you this morning, turn with me in it uh, to Mark chapter 12. uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 18 If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the verses up on the screen, but I would encourage you to bring a Bible because it is what we preach from every single Sunday. So feel free to bring a Bible, okay? For those of you who are visiting this morning, uh, we've been in a series for some time now from the last half uh, of the Gospel of Mark, which chronicles the last eight days of the life of Jesus. We are now in... The passage that we're looking at today is now in what is commonly referred to as Holy Week. Jesus will die on Friday. Now just yesterday, on Tuesday, Jesus pronounced Israel's temple obsolete in a scathing attack on Israel's corrupt religious establishment. The next day, Wednesday, which is today, three groups of religious leaders come in Wave after wave after wave to confront and to discredit Jesus in front of all of the crowds of people who are following him. Today, the last and the most elite of all of these groups come to Jesus to challenge him theologically on his teaching on the afterlife. I want to start reading at verse 18, and again, I want to welcome those people who are joining us over the internet. We're glad that you guys are joining us too. Okay, verse 18, Mark chapter 12, what happens after death? Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. This is just an editorial comment here I want to make. This clearly wasn't a very smart family because after the third husband died, someone should have said, I think I'll pass. Anyway, (laughs) last of all, the woman died too. And they asked this question, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, I want to just stop there for a minute. There's more to read. But I want to look at this passage through uh, a similar grid, if you were here with us last week, a similar grid to the one that we used then. I'm going to look at it through uh, through this grid. First, we're going to look at the question. I want to understand the question that they're asking. Second, I want to understand the response that Jesus gives. And then we're going to conclude with the dilemma. Okay, so question, response, and then at the end, what I'm calling the dilemma. Let's start now with the question, which is what you just read, okay? Now, to understand this question, because I know it seems a little contrived. Uh, to understand this question, you need to know a little background on these people that are called the Sadducees. Here are five quick things that you need to know about the Sadducees, and i have put them on a, on a slide for, uh, for you so that you can follow along. Here's the first. The first was, these were the wealthy, ultra-conservative, religious elite of Israel the wealthy, ultra-conservative, religious elite of Israel. Now, because of that... You know, they were much less common than the other religious group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more middle class, maybe upper middle class. These were, the Sadducees were the one percenters of Israel, so there weren't many of them. This is why, uh, this is the first time in the book of Mark that the Sadducees have come up. We've heard a lot about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were everywhere. I mean, they were everywhere. You know, they'd, you know, out in the field, they'd be out in the field, they'd be out in the gates of the city, they'd be in the business place, every place, Pharisees. Sadducees, Not so. They were one place. And this is the second thing that you need to know about them. They were in charge of the temple. That was their primary domain. So while Jesus, yesterday, on Tuesday, had certainly offended all of the religious leaders of Israel, it is fair to say that when he uh, went into the temple and declared it obsolete, the Sadducees felt the offense much more personally. Okay, Now third, with respect to what they believed, they believed in God... But fourth, with respect to the Old Testament, they only believed in what was called the Pentateuch, which was uh, the Pentateuch, Penta, five, okay? Referred to the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, also called the Book of Moses, okay? So they only, they only believed in those. They didn't believe the prophets. They didn't believe uh, uh, the po- in the poetry of the Old Testament, just the first five books of the Old Testament. And then finally, fifth, they didn't believe in the resurrection, as Mark says in verse 18, nor did they believe in angels because they didn't see either mentioned in the Pentateuch. Okay? So no resurrection, no judgment after death, no angels, no unseen beings. That's that's the Sadducees. Now, I just I want to I want to make a comment here. It's a little similar to something I said last week, but I think this is important to touch on because it's 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 here. It's right here in the text. Have you noticed that all of the religious and political parties in Israel, all of them, hate Jesus? I mean, every one of them hate Jesus. The conservative Pharisees hate Jesus. The liberal Herodians hate Jesus. We saw that last week. And then the ultra-conservative Sadducees also hate Jesus. Now, how can that be that every perspective on the political spectrum hated Jesus? And here's the answer. The gospel, you see, isn't derivative of any kind of human thinking. And so it's, it's not on the spectrum of political views that run, say, from ultra-conservative to the ultra-liberal, even though there are parts of the gospel that everyone on that spectrum wants to hijack. For instance, if you're a liberal here today, when you hear the implications of the gospel for the poor and for the outsider, you're all on board with that. You, you love that. But on the other hand... You hate all of the talk about how everyone has to get converted by believing in Jesus. That offends you if you're a liberal. Perhaps what offends you the most is that you can't put Jesus in the box that you'd like to put him in as a nice liberal. You'd like to just put him in that box so that you understand that he's a nice liberal and agrees with you on everything. Okay, that's the liberals. But if you're a conservative... You like all the parts of the gospel that speak about right and wrong and morality and justice and wrath and sin, but you hate the parts that speak about social justice for the poor and the outcast. That's offensive to you. And perhaps what's most offensive to you is that you can't put Jesus in that little box that says, he's a nice conservative. I know exactly what he believes. He believes just like me. Okay. And if you come to believe in the gospel you will find that your liberal friends want to pin you down as a liberal and your conservative friends will want to pin you down as a conservative. And at some point, you will offend both of them in ways that will alienate them because the gospel isn't anywhere on this political spectrum. Now, I want to give you an example of this uh, from my own life. A few years ago, uh, the Evansville Courier asked me to write a column for this. For the faith section of the newspaper, every uh, four to six weeks. I'm on a rotation with a whole bunch of other uh, faith leaders uh, here in the city of Evansville, or people from other faiths. So, like, I'm probably the only Protestant. I think there's a priest, and then I think there's uh, an imam, and then there's, you know, a rabbi. It sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Here comes a joke, you know. Uh, but anyway, there's a, <laughs> there's a bunch of them. About a year ago, during the whole ordeal with the religious freedom law here in Indiana, you guys may remember this, that a family-owned pizza parlor in Indianapolis refused to serve a gay couple who wanted them to make pizzas for their wedding. You guys remember this? Nod your heads. Okay, good. Well, all of that went down around the time that I was supposed to write my column. And I wrote in that column that I saw nothing about the gospel that should prevent a believer in Christ from making pizza for a gay wedding. Uh, Any more than it would prevent a Christian uh, chair manufacturer from making chairs for people to sit on at a gay wedding. Okay? That's what I wrote. Now, let me tell you something. Oh, my goodness. Conservatives were furious with me. How could you say that? You're a pastor of the gospel. This family needs to have the right, because of their Christian faith, to refuse to have their pizza eaten at a gay wedding. On the other hand, my gay friends in Evansville loved me. They thought I was awesome, like an evangelical pastor siding with them, how Jesus-like they thought. Okay, fast forward about a year. Some of you may know this, a couple of weeks ago, it's time for me to write my column again. And I wrote about President Obama's mandate that, among other things, uh, schools would be required, you know, to have a unisex bathroom for transgendered students. You guys know all about that. I wrote that while I affirm the freedom of any American to dress, act, or surgically alter oneself according to one's taste, I wrote that the mandate ran contrary to basic principles taught in school science classes about gender identification through chromosomal structure, males having an XY chromosomal structure, and females having an XX chromosomal structure, right? Okay. Oh, my. Liberals were furious with me. One man wrote in the paper and said, people like me are as bad as radicalized Muslims with a gun. Another organization in town said I was guilty of hate speech. But my conservative friends in Evansville loved me. I got emails from those people saying, way to go, giving me, you know, electronic high fives. That was great. They thought I finally found Jesus. They were excited about this, okay? Okay. And you see, because the gospel isn't derivative of any school of human thought or political perspective, you need to know this. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, everyone at some point is going to hate you. Everyone is going to hate you. It's true, yes, Jesus was loving and he accepted people just as they are. But he also talked about sin and he talked about repentance and he talked about change. Yes, it's true. Jesus talked about judgment and wrath. But he also talks about social justice for the poor and the outcasts. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to know that one of the costs of discipleship is that at some point, everyone is going to hate you just like they hated Jesus. You need to know that. And you have to make a decision. There's no, see, here's the thing. There's no safe middle ground. You, you have to make a decision. If, you, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you have to make a decision about following Him. And You have to know that people are going to hate you at some point. Okay. I want to get back to the topic at hand, the afterlife. The ultra-conservative Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, they come to Jesus with this carefully concocted conundrum. Do you know how hard that was to say? I thought about that for like a whole day this week. How can I come up with that? Anyway. Carefully concocted conundrum. In order to demonstrate, what they wanted to demonstrate is how ridiculous belief in the afterlife is. And so that uh, also in the process, they could humiliate Jesus. Now, why do they want to humiliate him? Why would they use the resurrection to humiliate him? Well, it's because three times in just the last few chapters, Jesus has predicted his resurrection in Mark chapter 8 verse 31, Mark chapter 9 verse 31, Mark chapter 10 verse 34. He he's three times predicted his resurrection. Now, as ridiculous as this story they tell sounds to us, you know, seven dudes that marry this one woman and then everybody dies, no children. Okay, as ridiculous as this story sounds, understand that this wasn't something that they had just come up with on the spot. No, no, no. This was likely a well-honed argument that they had made to the Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection that had just completely stumped the Pharisees. And so they think they smell a Pharisee in Jesus. So they're very confident that this story will stump him that it'll be game set and match for Jesus and they'll be able to be done with him, Okay. Now, what is this stuff? What is is all of this stuff? Why this particular story about these brothers who keep marrying their dead brother's wife? Well, as the text tells us in verse 19, this is referring to a command in the Mosaic Law. Remember, that's all they believe, the book of Moses. So, the command in the Mosaic Law that was called Leverate Marriage. Leverate Marriage. And the purpose of this was really... um, you know, it was really a social program. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a governmental social program, but it was a social program that, G, that, that God had commanded uh, for the people of Israel to protect widowed women financially. It was very unique. Okay? It was part of God's concern for the welfare of the weakest members of society because you see, in ancient cultures, only men could own property. And so if a man died who had sons... His widow was automatically uh, protected from poverty in the future, her, her social security essentially, because the oldest son would inherit the land and he would farm it and she would live with him and his family and she would be provided for. But if there were no sons, the woman couldn't own it and if it wasn't for this command, she's out on the streets. So God commanded the oldest male relative of the widow to marry her with the primary intent of reproduction so that she could have a male heir to inherit, the, to inherit the land, which would both secure the woman's financial future, and then the secondary intent of it was that the family name would survive. Okay, So that's why they tell this convoluted story about all of these brothers who marry the first brother's widow. They think... That this command in the law renders the afterlife impossible. Whose husband, uh, who is going to be the husband of this woman? That's why they ask it. And like the others, that you know that have come to test Jesus, they end the story in verse 23 with this very carefully crafted question at the resurrection. And you can, man, you can hear him sneer. You can, you know, just even as they ask it, you can hear him sneer. And it's like they ask this in a a very arrogant way because they are confident we have got him stumped by this story. At the resurrection, now, Jesus, will you please solve this for us? Whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It's a trap. It's a trap, you see. If Jesus laughs and says... (laughs) You guys are right, that's a real problem, I never thought about that. Then Jesus is discredited. Nobody's gonna, nobody buys him as the Messiah. Okay? On the other hand, if he comes up with some convoluted answer about which brother she would be married to, the Sadducees will laugh at him, and they will discredit him. So it's a trap, it's a trap. Okay? It's, a, it's a trap. Now, that's the first part of the grid through which we're looking at this passage. The question. Okay, We've covered the question. Now I want to move on to the next part of the grid through which we're looking at this, and that is the answer. What does Jesus say to them? Verse 24, and as we we read this section, I want you to see, this will be just kind of a little pop quiz, see if you can see, if you can spot, three ways that Jesus tailors his answer, specifically for the Sadducees, on the basis of what I told you earlier, about the Sadducees, okay? See if you can spot three ways that Jesus specifically tailors his answer uh, for the Sadducees. Jesus replied, verse 24, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? Uh, Just a quick comment. We'll keep reading, but just a quick comment. To say this to the Sadducees, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God? To say that to the Sadducees would be like saying to brokerage firms on Wall Street, do you not know finance and economics? That's offensive in and of itself. By the way, I think both are true. <laughs> Neither do the Sadducees know uh, uh, the scriptures, nor do brokerage uh, firms on Wall Street seem to know economics and finance very well. But let me, let me go on. To add to this, okay, it's it's offensive in and of itself that he just says to them, "Don't you, you know you don't seem to know the scriptures." But to add to it, here's something else: rich people, rich people, don't like to be told they're wrong. That doesn't happen to rich people very much. They don't like to be told they're wrong, and yet Jesus just. Comes right out with it. He doesn't care how much money they have. Comes right out with it. He says, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he says, as as if he hasn't offended them enough, he says, you are badly mistaken. Okay, now did you catch, did you spot the three ways that Jesus tailored his answer specifically for the Sadducees? Did you catch them? Okay, here's the first one. They don't believe in the resurrection, so he said, when the dead rise. Okay? Not if the dead rise, he says, when the dead rise. Second, they don't believe in angels, so he says, they will be like angels in heaven, And then third, they only believe in the Pentateuch. You know, the first five book of the Bible is also known, verse 26 calls it the book of Moses. Okay? So, so he tailors his answer specifically for these Sadducees because he wants to reach them. But he knows that in order to reach them, he's going to have to tailor this specifically for them. Now, I want to I acknowledge something here. When you read this, I think if you're, if you're married, and you love and like your spouse, this seems kind of depressing, doesn't it? That we aren't going to be married to each other in heaven. On the other hand, if you don't particularly love or like your spouse, you're probably smiling in your heart right now and saying, hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah. <laughs> when I die, I've always thought that I would be in heaven, eagerly awaiting for my wife's arrival. You ask, how do you know that you would die before her? And I will tell you, because I think she'll kill me at some point for something. But (laughs) seriously, though, I've always thought that I would be there, you know, waiting in heaven for my wife's arrival. How romantic a thought is that? But the problem that the Sadducees have is the same problem that we have. They only imagine the next life as an extension of this life. This is what Jesus means when he says to them in verse 24, he says that they don't know the power of God. They don't understand God's power to resurrect dead people, but they also don't understand the radical transformation that he will bring about in us in the next life, which is also why he refers to us being like angels, not that. Be very careful here. Not that we become angels. That's not, we're not going li- to be angels in heaven. Okay, that, that's bad theology. Some people believe that, but it's bad theology. What he means is that like angels, we will have a similar glory and a similar immortality. And like the angels, we won't marry. Because we will be defined by our relationship to Jesus Christ. Who, by the way, is later referred to in the New Testament as the bridegroom of the church. Okay? But I want you to hear me on something. Hear me on this. Because of the power of God, the future won't have life after death won't have less intense love than we have now on earth. It will be more intense. The pleasure of eternity with Christ will make the best married sex on earth look like nothing by comparison. Uh, A pastor, uh, an author by the name of Tim Tim Keller, very well known, says it this way: the greatest erotic sense of closure and oneness will seem like a dewdrop compared to an atomic bomb. That's what he says about heaven, about life after death. The afterlife is a world of of love so incredibly powerful that it's going to subsume marriage. It's not going to make it obsolete in the sense that our love lives are going to be less than marriage. Rather, they will be incomparably more than marriage, our love lives in heaven. The depth of love and oneness and delight in one another and in Christ that makes the most rapturous moment in the best marriage in the history of the world look like nothing. So no more weddings. Why? Because there won't be any more single people. There won't be any widowed people. There won't be any divorced people. All of us will have a spouse in Jesus Christ. He will be everyone's spouse. He's the bridegroom of the church. St. Teresa of uh, Avila once said that the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. Now still this isn't proof to the Sadducees because remember they don't they don't you know Jesus is saying this to them but they don't think they can find any of this in the Pentateuch. So Jesus addresses that by appealing to the only part of the Old Testament that they accepted, the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He could have proved this from any number of passages. He could have used the Psalms. He could have used the prophets. There are any number of passages there that he could have used. But because they only believe in those first five books, he uses their ultra-conservativeness against them by appealing to the book of Moses. And he reminds them in a time, of a time in the book of Exodus in which God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. He reveals himself as the God of the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, Israel's namesake, Israel's, you know, the the people that God used to to build Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with whom God had made a covenant to bring a great nation out of their descendants and and ultimately one day to rescue the world through them. Jesus, by the way, is one of their descendants. Now, all of those guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were long dead by the time of Moses. I mean, they, they were long dead. By the time of Moses. But Jesus points out that God said, I am, present tense, the God of these men. Jesus is saying that hundreds of years after their death, God is revealing that he is their present tense God because they are still alive. God is the God of the living. And to deny the resurrection is to deny, as the Sadducees did, the power of God. Now, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's bodily resurrection is still to come, but they are very much alive, even today. And their resurrection will come because of the power of God in the future. So, you see, you know, we all, uh, the older you get, the more you consider your mortality. You just do. And so, there's this sense in which we all know that we're fleeting, um, that our life is, is fleeting, that we're temporal. But what you need to know is that you become permanent because of the resurrection. You become permanent, not temporal, not fleeting. You become a permanent being if you believe in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. No longer fleeting, no longer temporal, but permanent. Okay, Okay, that's that's the answer. We've looked at the question. We've looked at the answer. I want to wrap up now uh, with the dilemma. Before I do, let me just say one more thing. This story that that we just told is included in the other gospel writers. Uh, Luke tells us, the, the writer Luke tells us, that when the Sadducees heard this answer, they were afraid to ask him anything else. They were like, he just, he just made us look really dumb. Matthew tells us that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' brilliant. See, the Sadducees were guilty of seeing this, you know, the afterlife as merely an extension of this life, and they failed to see the resurrection in the law that they were so proud they knew better than anyone else. Okay, okay that's the answer. Now, let's really end now with a final point. Through which we're looking at this passage, the dilemma. We've looked at the question, we've looked at the answer, and we're going to look at what I'm calling the dilemma. And really, what I'm referring to when I say the dilemma is the very last line of verse 27. When Jesus says to the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, he says, "You are badly, you are badly mistaken." And here's the dilemma, And, and, and it's a dilemma for everyone here, okay? You see, all of us are disciples of someone. All of us are. We're all disciples of someone. In fact, most of us are disciples of a bunch of dead philosophers who lived hundreds of years ago, and we don't even know it, but their ideas have shaped the world in which we live. For instance, you may not realize it, but the Sadducees' disbelief in the resurrection is very much like Some of the most important philosophers of what's called postmodernism, people like Nietzsche, who believed that the gospel was for weak people. He saw the suffering of Jesus as being pitiful. Or people like Nietzsche, who believed, or excuse me, or people like Marx, who thought that the resurrection, bogus as it was, caused people to focus on the future world and to ignore the problems of the present world. That's what Marx thought. The dilemma that each one of us has is not whether we will be a disciple, but who we will be a disciple of. And you must understand that there is no, like, there's no middle ground that is safe for you to stand on. Jesus says to those who deny the resurrection, you are badly mistaken. Like, you know, like eternally badly mistaken. Okay? And his opponents... That's Jesus. He says, you're badly mistaken if you don't believe in the resurrection. His opponents say that Jesus is a liar and a fraud. There's no safe middle ground here. You need to understand that, okay? And the question, the dilemma is this. Who will you trust? Now, on one side of the equation, you have Jesus, who claimed to be God, and who didn't have to die On a cross, at any moment, he could have called down all of the unseen angelic forces to free him from his executioners, but he didn't. Instead, he chose to die because he believed that of all of the potential religious leaders in the future, Of all of the people who claimed to be the way, that he was the only acceptable sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And out of love for us, he died the death that we deserved so that we could experience eternal life. Now, that's Jesus. That's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, you have the Sadducees, who were so afraid of Jesus after this conflict, they wouldn't ask him anything else. Or or or, or Nietzsche as I said, believe that Jesus' death was a sign of his pitiful weakness. But let me ask you something. Which takes more strength? To sacrifice and suffer for people you love, even though you could avoid it? Or to ignore it and just do nothing? Which takes more strength? Over here on this side of the equation, there's also uh, Karl Marx. Who says that the resurrection causes people to focus on the next world and to ignore the evil and injustices of the present world. But ask yourself something. If there is no next world, if there is no accountability for human life, if there is no judgment, if there is no resurrection, why would I care one whit about the evil and injustices of the present world? Why would you care in the end if all you're going to do is rot? Life doesn't matter. Injustice doesn't matter. Right and wrong are just mere human constructs if there's nothing else. Two sides of the equation. You got Jesus, you got the Sadducees, you got Nietzsche, you got Marx, and others. Who do you want to be a disciple of? There is no safe middle ground. These guys, Jesus says, are badly mistaken. They say Jesus is a fraud and a liar. Whose side? who do you want to be a disciple of? Jesus says that if you believe in him, you will never be referred to in the past tense by the one who is the author of life and death. He will always say, I am the God of, insert your name. Insert your name. He will never say, he will never refer to you in the past tense. He will always refer to you In the present tense. Can I tell you something? There is no greater horror than to be referred to in the past tense. In fact, there's no greater horror than to refer to someone that you loved in the past tense. I once had a son. I once had a friend. I once had a daughter. Nothing worse than being referred to in the past tense. Jesus says that if you believe in him and believe in the resurrection, that you will always be referred to in the present tense by God. But at the same time, Jesus says that if you follow him, you better know, if you want to be a disciple of his, you better know on the front end the cost. And that is that if people hated Jesus, be prepared that even the people that you love, even the people that you deeply and dearly care for, even those people are going to hate you too at some point if you follow him. Because you will alienate and anger even those whom you love. Which do you choose Who are you a disciple of? I want to close with this. Uh, Noted author, uh, a leading British scholar on the New Testament, N.T. Wright. I've quoted him in here before, uh, other things. He once wrote about the resurrection. He said this. The bodily resurrection of Jesus isn't a take-it-or-leave-it thing, as though some Christians are welcome to believe it and others are welcome not to believe it. Take it away, and the whole picture is totally different. Take it away, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take it away, and Sigmund Freud was probably right to say that Christianity is a wish-fulfillment religion. Take it away, and Friedrich Nietzsche was probably right to say that Christianity was a religion for wimps. Put it back and you have a faith that can take on the postmodern world that looks to Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche as its prophets. And you can beat them at their own game with the Easter news that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Make a decision about whom you will be a disciple of because there is no safe middle ground, either Jesus or a bunch of dead people who are now past tense, who once lived but now are not. Would you pray with me? Thank you for the revelation, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the teaching of the resurrection. It is very difficult to believe. The idea that you can raise bodies uh, from the dead. And as Sean uh, prayed earlier, uh, there is in all of us uh, skeptics. I mean, we're all skeptics to some extent. But Lord, pray that you would take this passage and make this passage very real to people today. I pray for those that uh, are are disciples of Jesus Christ, that they would understand uh, now in a new way that they will alienate people. And that because uh, people hated you, because the world hated you, they will hate them. The world will hate us at times. Lord, for those people here who've never made a decision about who they're going to be a disciple of, I pray that today would be a day that they would make a decision about that. And I pray that they would recognize that the beauty of the gospel is that if you believe in Jesus, unlike every other religious leader in the world, every other religious leader in the world tells us, "Uh, Lord, you know, here's how you have to live. It's up to you. If you live this way, you'll be saved. If you don't, you won't. Lord, would you make the distinction very clear to people today that unlike every one of those religious leaders, the gospel says that if you believe in Jesus, it's about his life, not yours. It's about his performance, not yours. It's about what he did, not what we did. Would you make that clear? Would you drive that home in a way that I can't drive it home today? Would you just drive that into people's hearts and minds and souls today? And for those that have not made a decision about whether they're going to be a disciple of Jesus... Or today could be that day. Would you just bring them to that point that they would say, yes, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I believe in him. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins so that I could have eternal life. Would you make that clear to them today? And our Lord Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. We worship you. Amen.